In November, we began looking at the often overlooked poetic book, The, the Song of Solomon. I mentioned when we started this book that there's a lot of reasons to tackle it. I spoke of several of those in the first sermon, and as we turn to it this morning, it, we recognize this portion of God's Word that, that we can turn to knowing with confidence that there is something for all of us in it. It's something that we are all involved in. As you know, we look at this book, and this book is focused on marriage, human intimacy, and we're all engaged in that, either directly or indirectly. We need to understand what God's ideal is for this aspect of our lives. Furthermore, when we look at this book, we also have begun to understand that it helps us understand the perfect love of our Savior more fully. This book illustrates ideal love for us, ideal love at the human level that our Savior fills out fully at the spiritual level. You, you may recall that I believe this book should, um, we should not look at this song as I'm calling it in short, it's too much to say Song of Solomon every time I, I, I say the name, so we'll just call it the song. I believe we should not look at the song as a drama. Sometimes people try to fit it into a dramatic enactment of some sort. This isn't a drama. There's not a storyline for us to follow. Rather, this is more like a song that's arranged as a large choral arrangement. It's a symphony, if you would, a choral movement. There are several parts that, that provide movement for us as is skillfully arranged to carry our emotions. That's what music does. It carries our emotion. And, and this song is arranged to carry our emotions through a progression of love between a, a man and a woman. And yet there's not a storyline here for us to track. The, the song is, is sung by three voices. The, the beloved is the, the main singer. The beloved is, if you want to envision your mind, a, a choral arrangement. The beloved is a female singer, and she's singing the, the primary part. She's singing the part of a young woman in love. The, the second is the lover, the, the male solo voice. He's singing the part of the man who, who has captured the love of the beloved with his own love. And, and then you have a third voice that's really a, a chorus of voices. It, it's female friends of the beloved that, that add a third perspective from time to time, singing as a choir of voices. It's helpful to think of the song as well as, as love poetry set to music. I, I say that because poetry, that's what we have captured, just the, the lyrics of the song here, the poetry. Poetry uses dense word pictures. It uses these dense word pictures to communicate ideas that, that then prompt emotional responses within us. Our goal has been to understand these word pictures that, that are used in this song. We need to understand them because they're, they're using a framework that in many cases is foreign to us, is ancient, is different than ours. But we need to understand the word picture so that we will understand the emotions that we're to associate with the ideal love that, that's being conveyed. That the song, like all music, is designed to give voice to emotional ideas, a language of emotion. Through the first three chapters that we've looked at, we followed a progression of emotions as the young couple's love has developed. So far, this young couple has sought time to be alone. Their, their desire for one another grown has become increasingly fervent. At the same time, their, their dedication to, to maintain the, the purity of their love, that, that was evident throughout. 
They have not allowed an intimate physical relationship to develop inappropriately. Rather, they've saved themselves, using the language that we would use today. They've saved themselves for one another. They, they restrain their, their increasing passion uh, until they can rightly express that passion within the covenant relationship of marriage. The, the first two sections of this choral arrangement, if we want to think about it that way, the movements, these sections of arrangements, the, the first two sections ended with the very same warning. Twice, they were warned to safeguard love's purity by, by constraining his growth until the proper time. Physical intimacy is a powerful passion. Emotion is strong. They're warned to constrain it. The, the final movement that we looked at before the holidays was contained in the end of chapter 3. There the wedding day has finally arrived. The, the bride sings of the approach of the bridegroom's party as, as he was coming to take her away to the wedding. She shared her joy with her friends as she sang that part, as she, she reached toward the, the fullest expression of love, the, that covenant relationship that she was about to form with her lover. Now, before we move into the text this morning, I, I do want to remind us that we are not only looking for the lessons that the song has about ideal human love. The song does teach us what ideal human love looks like and what the proper place for ideal love to be expressed, where intimacy is to find its expression within marriage. But we also want to see how this ideal human love illustrates the perfect love of our Savior. This is not an allegory of Christ's love for the church, as I mentioned at the beginning, but it is an illustration of ideal love. And it illustrates where we will find ideal love fully expressed, Scripture tells us, in the love of our Savior for His bride, the church. While, while the song focuses on the human level of, of pure love, the, the fact is we find it preserved for us in Scripture. And that fact assures us that it has something to teach us on the spiritual level as well. It teaches us about God's love as the perfect love of God is expressed through the love of Christ. I've already mentioned that, that we left this series off with the bride expressing her joy at the arrival of the bridegroom. Uh, at least one person I know has followed the, the sermon schedule well enough to, to spot that I had a mistake in it. Somehow moving between my plans last year to this year, I missed a whole chapter in, in my plan and, and somehow skipped over the chapter we're actually looking at today. So if you watch your schedule, you'll see it slid forward a little bit because I, I don't want to skip over this chapter. We left off with the bride expressing her joy at the arrival of the bridegroom's party, and, and we don't actually find any of the wedding ceremony itself in the Song of Solomon. There, there's no song that, that sings about the exchanging of nuptials. Instead, we rejoin our couple just in time for the wedding night. Now, we live in a vulgar society. Any celebration of chasteness and modesty is nearly impossible to find within our pop culture. Fortunately, the same cannot be said about our song. The song celebrates the most intimate of human experiences with poetic beauty. It is, finds that though coupled with restraint and dignity, as the lover and the beloved, they consummate their union in the song that we will look at this morning. 
We will walk through the song as it celebrates the intimacy of the wedding night. We will experience the, the joy of, of it. And if we will th- see it primarily experienced through the joy of the, the lover, the male voice. Remember, we experience the, the joy of the approaching wed- wedding through the eyes of the bride. She sang of the, the joy as her lover came to bring her to the, the wedding. Now we experience the excitement of the wedding night through the eyes of the groom. The, the lover sings to his beloved. In, in the first seven verses, the lover praises the beloved intimately. He praises her intimately. I trust you have your Bibles open. Look at so- Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are flung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like the two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. At last, the man, the the groom, the, the lover, at last he is alone with his beloved. Certainly he has anticipated this moment. Now, at last, it has arrived. The, the first thing that should strike us as we read these verses or hear them is, is the tenderness with which he approaches his bride. This is not the approach of conquest. This is not a man taking what is rightfully his. This is a man looking at his bride, marveling at the woman that he loves. The, the picture that, that springs to mind is, is that the bride and the groom here have, have slipped away from the, the, the party that's going on, the celebration of their wedding. And they've made their way now to the bridal chamber. From, from what we know of ancient ceremonies, the, the wedding celebration could last for days. The, the bride and groom, during those days, the bride and groom on that first night would retire to the bridal chamber. And there they would consummate their union while the celebration was continuing among the guests. They've moved to the bridal chamber. They are alone. The, the beloved is still wearing her wedding veil. The, the lover can see his eyes, so his words begin there. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now, I'm quite sure I have never used that line with grace. I'm pretty sure none of you have either. Still, we can sense the tenderness. We can sense that there's tenderness baked into the words of the lovers using the language of love here. It's a language that's chock full of metaphors. As I said, many of the metaphors are foreign to us because we live in a different culture. We live in a different time, a different place, a different world. 
Our metaphors are different, but we understand the use of metaphors. And the language of love is chock full of metaphors. And as we look at these, we see there's tenderness and adoration that's being expressed. The groom takes off her veil and head covering, and her hair cascades down about her shoulders, like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Again, that's a line I've never used. But there's no doubt that he means praise. He's adoring his wife. He compliments the whiteness of her teeth, the the redness of her lips, the the blush of her cheeks, the blush of her temples. He admires the dignity of her neck, the delicacy of her breasts. He is praising every element of her as he sees it. He's drawing intimate attention to her body as his gaze rests upon her. In verse 7, he summarizes his observations by simply stating that she is perfect. Altogether beautiful, my darling. With, with those two words, my darling, he has declared to her that she is his beloved, his companion, his cherished love. And in his eyes, She is without blemish. Folks, if you have ever wondered whether it's proper for a husband and wife to enjoy physical intimacy with one another, meditate on these verses. These verses put any doubts you might have about the the rightness of intimacy to rest. These are passionate verses. Yet the lover's passion, as I said at the outset, contains no vulgarity. There's only beauty here. There's only tenderness. Until this point, the, the man and the woman, they've held their passion back. We, they've warned others, don't let passion move until it has its proper place. They've refused to let their desire for one another go be, because they were lacking the, the covenant relationship that would be the proper framework for them to engage in their passion. But now that framework's in place. We're past the I do point. There is no longer any restraint because there's no longer any need for restraint. Instead, what we have is tender, intimate enjoyment as the lover praises his beloved intimately. We see them enjoying the most intimate time with one another within the covenant context that that God has designed for this intimacy. And for that reason, it's beautiful rather than vulgar. In our song here, the man continues singing the solo. He's singing in verses 8 through 15 as the lover desires the beloved intimately. He moves from praises to expressions of desire. God has designed men so that sight is the strongest sense that feeds male desire. Seeing his beloved standing before him, that increases the the lover's desire for it. Look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Shinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. 
Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon's. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon." I don't believe that the language of love must make literal sense all the time. When we start speaking in language of love, it doesn't always make literal sense. I, I'm truly not sure what all the reference points of the invitation in verse R, or verse 8 refer to, but I have no doubt that as I read them, the lover is expressing his desire to have an intimate time with his beloved, a time for the two of them that, that is shared with no one else. The language of love often develops into a unique language between two people where they exchange words of intimacy. The word that he is using to address her in verse 8, the word that we have translated bride in the New American Standard, that's the Hebrew word for a woman who has been incorporated into his family. He repeats this word five times in, in the next five consecutive verses. She is part of his family. She is a woman, married woman now. She is his wife, his bride. And he desires her. He desires intimacy with her. The lover tells his beloved that she makes his heart beat faster. A single glance from her eyes is all that it takes. Now, now we might think calling her his sister is a mood killer, but in the culture of the day, it's a term of endearment. He's telling her that she now has a place in his life as close as a blood relative, and family meant everything. He's telling her that she has a place that's right there as close as a sister to him now. And when you combine that word with bride, it is a combination of endearment. It's a term of commitment. He has committed to her and he desires her. Her kisses lead him to anticipating consummating their marriage. She is more exhilarating than any spice, more valuable than the most expensive spices he can imagine. In the words of one commentator, an intimate relationship with his beloved, he is saying, is valuable beyond price, rare beyond measure, delightful beyond telling. Those are the words a woman wants to hear on her wedding night that she is precious. His final words to her in verse 15 speak of his confidence that she is able to provide refreshment and joy in abundance. Now, if you have never considered these verses carefully before, you may be surprised to discover that they're here in the pages of Scripture. These are passionate verses, intimate verses. I said at the outset of the series, though, the one place that we fail to to talk about sex is in church. Yet God created sex. God gave it to us as a good gift, a gift for a man and woman to enjoy within the bounds of marriage, within that covenant relationship that God ordained. Of course, as with all gifts that God has given, sin has corrupted and distorted and tarnished 
the gift. Sadly, we've relegated most of the discussion to this gift that God gave, this this powerful gift that he gave to a man and woman to enjoy within marriage. We've relegated the discussion of this gift into the realm that is also corrupted and distorted and tarnished by sin. The world. Are we surprised then that all the discussion around this gift that God has given us is vulgar? Rather than ensuring that we understand how God intends for his gift to continue his purposes in this broken world, we don't speak of it within the church. Very often, anyway. We, we tend to get embarrassed by it. What we see in these verses, within marriage, a, a marriage that frankly comes long after the fall, Song of Solomon here is being written into a sin-tarnished world, a sin-broken world, What we see in these verses is is that God still has this good gift for a husband and wife. It is good for a husband and wife to desire one another. And it is good for them to express that desire. Now I recognize, as I mentioned at other points in this series, there are several unmarried people here. Some of you have lost your spouse. You've lost your spouse to the ultimate curse of sin. And now you're widows and widowers. Some others have lost their, your spouse to the brokenness caused by sin that has re- led to divorce. Some of you have yearned for a spouse that, that God has not given you. And some of you may have never considered taking a spouse at this point in your life. What, whatever your circumstance is, I believe it is still important that you understand what God has said about intimacy and desire. God has spoken. He's not left us without any words of instruction. God has not given everyone the opportunity to experience intimacy. Nonetheless, we we must recognize that he has given it as a good gift overall to mankind. And he has given a place for it. Marriage. Regardless of what circumstance you find yourself in, you dare not demean God's gift to others simply because he has not given it to you at this moment. Nor dare you ignore it when you know that sin seeks to corrupt what God has given. Rather, the picture we have here informs us that we all should celebrate what God has given others Maybe not you, but we should celebrate what God gives others because he gives it for his glory and his good purposes for a husband and wife within marriage. Now, I also understand that there are likely those here who have failed to withhold acting on desires as as our lover and beloved have. As I mentioned before, there's some here who have failed to wait for this moment of the wedding night and have allowed passions to run prematurely and inappropriately. Sex is treated as too casual of a thing in our our broken world for us to expect that, that no one here has believed the lie that's offered to us by the world that we can do what we want with this gift God gave. Well, if that's your case to you, I say it is proper that, that you grieve your failure at this point. It's proper that you acknowledge it to God But it's also important that you understand that your experiences, 
do not change the design that God has for intimacy. You too can, can confirm and, and affirm that intimacy is a good gift that God gives within the marriage covenant. That's where the full expression of joy is intended. That's what we see laid out here for us in our, our text. We've heard the lover as he directly expresses his desire for the beloved. He desires the beloved intimately. And in the final verse of the chapter, the beloved responds. The female voice sings out as the beloved invites the lover intimately. Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden, eat his choice fruits. The lover used many poetic garden metaphors as he expressed his desire for his bride. Now she responds using the, the same metaphor. She matches his personal invitation with her words as she invites him to enjoy her fully. This verse, verse 16, really is the high point of, of the book. If the high point of the song, if the crescendo, everything's been leading up, this is the, the consummation of the marriage. The, the coming together of a man and woman as husband and wife. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's nothing vulgar here. There, there's nothing pornographic. All is carefully concealed behind the screen of metaphoric poetry. But the woman, the, the bride, the, the beloved, she is inviting her lover to become one flesh with her. The, the song tactfully does not linger at this point, and, and neither will we. Immediately in the next verse, the lover experiences the beloved intimately. Once again, the, the lover sings, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Surely you notice that the past tense verbs, the sudden shift. The past tense verbs let us know that the invitation that the beloved extended to the, the, her lover has been accepted. Her husband has come in and enjoyed her fully. The, the fullness of covenant love has been experienced. Again, though, we, we, we are able to sense the joy of the experience without any vulgarity. This is pure love and intimacy as God intends it. Surprisingly, the record of the wedding night is not complete. There's one final refrain to be sung, and, and we're surprised when there's a sudden swelling of voices from off the side here. We have a swelling of voices as the chorus sings out. The friends Celebrate the lover's intimacy. Eat, friends. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. The friends are well aware of what has transpired in the bridal's chamber. They're, they're well aware and they celebrate, rejoicing with the new couple. As I said earlier, the customs of the day, the, the, the bride and groom would re, re I, 
say retreat, uh, retired, that's the word I'm looking for, retired to the, the bridal chamber. While the celebration was continuing on, the wedding guests would celebrate for days. The celebration now of the friends marks the approval of the intimacy within the, the newly formed covenant union. It marks the approval of the marriage of their friend. In fact, if you look at it, they do not wish that this is a one-time enjoyment. The, the consummation is not viewed as a contractual duty that has to be fulfilled to, to make everything official. They encourage the couple to eat and drink deeply to one another, to, to become intoxicated with the delights of love. This is an encouragement to enjoy what God has given and to enjoy it fully. More significantly from our perspective, the, the final two lines of this verse, this, this public commentary on, on the intimate union between the husband and wife, these words are included in inspired scripture. That tells us that the God as well approves of the intimacy within the covenant union of marriage. The intimacy that, that God has forbidden outside of marriage because it cannot be enjoyed as He intends for it to be enjoyed. Anything outside marriage shortens and, and, and tarnishes and corrupts what God intends. But now, where it's, where it's within the place He intends, where it can be enjoyed to its fullest, God expresses the celebration of the marriage. This final, these final words completes the stanzas of the song that, that celebrates the wedding night. There, there are certainly lessons for us here, lots of lessons of, of the goodness of intimacy within marriage. Yet I think we can also find a broader lesson. If we recognize, as we have at other points of the study, as I alluded to at the beginning, if we recognize that, that the covenant relationship between a husband and wife, that's intended by God to be a model of the covenant relationship between us and our Savior. We've just considered the most intimate aspect of this human covenant relationship. We've, we've been led into to experience the joy of, of this intimacy, to, to re, re, recall how this is God's design for joy to be fulfilled. And that joy of this most intimate action can point us toward a spiritual truth. The, the way I would word the lesson that, that I think we can take from this section of the song that, that applies to all of us is this. The full joy of intimate love within a context relationship points us toward the full joy of our salvation. My wife teases me that I manage to use lots of words when I make my point. She, she, yesterday she said, you know, for a guy of few words, you sure use a lot of them. I really couldn't think of a way to say this shorter. The, the full joy of intimate love within a covenant relationship points us toward the full joy of our salvation. This is, marriage is an illustration. This pure ideal love illustrates the full joy that we are to find in our salvation. The full joy of intimate love within a covenant relationship points us toward the full joy of our salvation. We've been considering the joy here of a husband and a wife on their wedding night. As we think of that, 
And as we read these verses, as we consider this joy that they are celebrating together, let's not forget that we are looking for a greater wedding night as believers. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19 with me. Revelation 19. The verses there probably have a header in your Bible like mine that says, Marriage of the Lamb. Verse 7. John records here for us, tells us that we're called on, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. We have the picture of this celebration going on as the marriage of the lamb occurs. And do you notice in this the reference to the bride? That's us. We are the bride of Christ, the church. The New Testament church is the bride of Christ. Those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior in this age, hopefully I can say you and I, I'm going to assume that you at least know the gospel, although I expect there are some here today that have never accepted the gospel message. But all of you have sat here before. You know what it means to accept Jesus as Savior. Those of us who have accepted Jesus as Savior, you and I, we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones gathering here with the bridegroom. And look at the description of the clothing. Fine linen, bright and clean. We're being observed here in wedding apparel. I want us to, to savor this image in our mind now as we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Standing there in the, a bridal image, a bridal apparel, before bridegroom on his wedding day. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. When will we, we be presented? Well, it's that marriage that we just looked at in Revelation chapter 19. Here again, in Colossians, the attention is on our appearance at that time. Our appearance is described here in Colossians as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The, the, the bulk of our text this morning dealt with the groom focused on the appearance of his bride. Her, her joy came in large part because of how he saw her. His view of her being perfect was what brought joy to her, what moved her to invite him to enjoy her fully. When we stand before God, when we're presented by our bridegroom as his bride, the focus is upon our appearance. Our Savior is going to focus on our appearance. After all, our Savior is the one who caused our appearance. And is causing it. Will cause it. We are holy and blameless at that moment when we stand before him as the bridegroom, the bride being presented by the bridegroom. We are holy and blameless because we are clothed in his holiness. We are bright and clean because he has cleaned us. 
We will be this because he makes us this. And our bridegroom, our Savior, he will look at us as the perfect bride because he has made us into the perfect bride. Yet I'm convinced that much like the, the bride finds her joy in knowing that as, as her husband is gazing at her and seeing her perfect, our joy will come from the same. Our full joy will be that our salvation is realized and we will know that our Savior is gazing upon us with all the glory in which he has clothed us and made us. And we are perfect. The full joy of intimate love within a covenant relationship points us toward the full joy of our salvation. That's the lesson that we can take from our verses this morning. Yes, there's lessons here for intimacy within marriage. That is to be celebrated. But they also point us to something much greater. This is the fifth sermon in the series. We, we took this break for the holidays, so as we conclude this morning, uh, I want to briefly review the previous lessons, and then we'll add this fifth one to it. The first lesson we learned, lesson number one, was love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Lesson number two we learned we must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. Lesson number three, we must intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. These are practical lessons for us about how God intends for intimacy to be experienced. Lesson four, joy reaches its fullest within covenant commitment. Outside of covenant commitment of marriage, we cannot experience intimacy in the fullest. It's impossible. It's tainted. It's corrupted. It's only within the covenant commitment of marriage that joy reaches its fullest. But now as we see it reaches fullest, lesson five points us beyond our present life to our salvation. The full joy of intimate love within a covenant relationship, it points us toward the full joy of our salvation. The, the song deals with physical love and intimacy. These are necessary things for us to learn about. We need to learn. Here within church, we need to learn how God has designed man and women to interact. How he has designed the gift of intimacy to be used. But we also need to recognize that intimacy points us to something so much greater. It points us to the, the fullness of the covenant relationship with our Savior. The full joy of intimate love within a covenant relationship points us toward the full joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be able to gather together as the church a small portion of your bride gathering this morning, but gathering with one another anticipating the day when we will stand before you blameless, holy, spotless, beyond reproach, perfect in every way, anticipating today the fullness of that joy we yearn for it. Father, I do pray that you'd be with the, the men and women here who are married. We pray for them specifically that you would allow within our, the marriages of our church intimacy to be celebrated and enjoyed the way that you designed it to be enjoyed. I pray for those who are not within marriage that you would allow an understanding of intimacy to come forth so that they can celebrate it where you have given it 
and also restrain it as you intend outside of marriage. And Father, as we work together as the church, celebrating what you give, may we encourage one another to look forward to the day when our Savior will return. And we will celebrate together all that we have in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.